lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins in a half. This podcast is brought to you by finish. Racing New Cavalry South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance. By stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's easy performance the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. I learned by sheer accident recently that Jeff Allendorf was in Australia over the Christmas New Year break after being marooned in Macau for a lengthy period of time by stringent COVID protocols. Jeff has been training full-time in Macau since 2005 following a very successful riding career which brought him close to 1,500 winners in Australia, Hong Kong and Macau. I learned on the grapevine that he headed straight to his hometown of Cairns to catch up with his elderly parents and two sisters. He later caught up with friends in the Riverina, at Coffs Harbour and on the Gold Coast and I was lucky enough to fluke him on the phone one day and make arrangements to record the podcast you're about to hear. Almost 50 years have passed since Jeff Allendorf journeyed from Cairns to become apprentice to the laconic Bede Horan, an ex-Western Districts trainer who relocated to Rose Hill fairly late in life. Jeff was a very successful apprentice and later enjoyed the support of many Rose Hill stables in an era when the place was bursting at the seams. He rode a number of winners in Hong Kong, he won three Macau premierships, and on one brief visit home in 1994, he picked up a winning ride in a Group 1. In 17 years of training in Macau, Jeff has enjoyed success at the highest level. He's made a million friends along the way, and many of them will enjoy his reminiscences about a lifetime in racing. Jeff Allendorf, great to catch up, mate. Thank you for joining us. Very much my pleasure, John. Love, lovely to talk to you after all these years, but um, it's all my pleasure. Now, mate, let's find out exactly where you are. You're back in Macau, aren't you, and back into the grind of horse training. I'm back in Macau and um, I come back Sunday night and straight away Monday morning we're back at the track. Um, yeah, back into the grind. We've got a couple of runners on Saturday. I think you've come back to a team of 13 horses. What do you call a big team in Macau? 
Well, at present, because we've had the COVID and nobody's been allowed to come here, the biggest stable in Macau's only got about 30-odd horses. In the old days, the, the number was at least 60, 50 and 60 everybody had. Mm. Um, but I've only got 13 at the moment. My average has been probably about 25 horses. I've never had the big numbers, but yeah. 25 is a good, comfortable number. Mm. All horses in Macau are stabled on the type of racecourse, and those numbers obviously dwindled through the pandemic. How many horses would you say are being trained in Macau as we speak? Well, this is the lowest number we've ever had. We've probably got about 300 horses. Mm. Um, in our very good days, we got up to 1,200 horses back in the late 90s when John Shrek was here. But then our average was about 600 horses um, in the since probably 2003. But um, we need to turn it around a bit and pick up again once all this pandemic goes back to normal. Mm, and Jeff, what percentage of the horses to have raced in Macau are from Australia and New Zealand? The majority, I imagine. I, I would say as high as. 85 to 90 percent of them mm. we we get some from england we get some from ireland we get even the odd one from america and um france but because it's so convenient and the australian horses suit us um most people buy in australia do they yeah now macau in its heyday uh, as a racing venue was a very busy place how do you look back on those golden years when you'd race two or three times a week? It was big, wasn't it? Uh, we, we were going great, you know. Towards the late 90s, um, we, we've never been in competition with Hong Kong. They're, they're in a league of their own, but we were going great when we had 1,200 horses in work. The colour of, of jockey that rode here, like, the last year I rode, 99, Paddy Payne was our leading jockey. We had Stephen Arnold. Um, you name a jockey and he's nearly had a stint in Macau. Mm. Um, that's how fortunate we were. Mm. You'd been busting to get to Australia for quite a long time, but you'd been hamstrung by these never-ending COVID restrictions. How long had it been since you'd been to Australia? Exactly three years and one month. Mm. But saying that, I could have come back to Australia, but I would have had to do quarantine. First of all, you had quarantine down there, mm. but we've always had quarantine here. So I was very reluctant to spend two or three weeks in, in a hotel room. Mm. So that was it was half my choice not to go anywhere, but yeah. I, I didn't have the time to spend three weeks in a hotel room. No. I mentioned in the introduction that your very first port of call was your hometown of Cairns. Now, your dad, Lindsay, who's coming up 90, was a jockey and a trainer early in life, so it was in the genes, wasn't it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things in the genes. It, me at 65, I reckon I'm only halfway there because <laughs> mum's 92 next month. Good on you. Yeah. And dad's... Dad's 90 coming up, so and they're mm. both in very, very good health, which is very fortunate for the whole family. Wonderful. Um, that's the main reason I went back there first. But I've got 
two sons in Sydney and mm. I've got four grandkids in Sydney. So yeah. um, we I caught up with all them, so it was good. But it's good when we can do both, you know, when I can go mm. down there and they can come up here, you know, like it's just yeah. this has been a trying three years, but everybody's been in the same situation. So mm. we've just got to get past it. How extensive was your dad's uh, uh, connection as a jockey and a trainer? Well, in, in the old days when he rode, um, there wasn't a lot of money in North Queensland, so they always had another job mainly, but he, he rode quite successfully in Cairns and even in the western districts of Queensland. Mm. He had a Cairns Cup winner, um, so... I didn't wasn't as fortunate to have a Cairns Cup winner, but I had a Newmarket winner in Cairns on one of my visits. Good. So that was always good. Yeah. Um, his father was the president of Cairns Jockey Club, so we've got plenty of history there. Yes. Mm, and that's one of the biggest regional race meetings anywhere in the world, the Cairns Amateurs in September. Fantastic. It is of a days. great meeting. Mm. It is a great meeting. Did Dad take you to the local race meetings as you were growing up? I went. I was connected with the racehorses all my life growing up. Um, mm. I think I was riding work when I was about 11 or 12, mm. um, which insurance and the laws of today wouldn't allow. But no. when I was 12 in Cairns, there was no real strict protocol, so I used to ride work. didn't make everybody happy, but... Um, mm. That's what I wanted to do, so that's what I did. Mm. Now, your mum, of course, is Shirley, who must take a very keen interest in your training career over there, and your two sisters are Lynette and Narelle, and they too live in the tropics. They've got the the full job of looking after my parents. My parents live on their own, but it's just great for me to have two sisters that live so close to them just in case anything unfortunate happens. Yeah. But um, they're very close to them and, um, yeah, it's it's a good situation that we're in. I'm, I'm a long way away in Macau, so mm. to have the two girls there, it's just brilliant. Mm. Now, when the prospect of becoming a jockey first started to creep into your thoughts, I think it was your dad who said, if you're going to do it, you've got to get yourself into a leading city stable. Now, you'd heard all the stories about the legendary jockey maker, Theo Green, and you tried to get into his place, Clear Day Lodge. Yes, um, I wanted to be a jockey from the time I was eight or ten. I I always wanted to be a jockey. Mm. Um, And one of the stipulations was my father said I weren't allowed to be a jockey in Cairns. I had to go south. I had to go to Brisbane or Sydney. Mm. So um, we come up with the idea to try to go to Theo, and as Theo was always full, mm. he was the one who suggested to me that I go to Beat Horan, mm. which was still not a bad move. Um, it was no. a good move, actually. But um, Theo, everybody wanted to be apprentice to Theo, and um, he was just a legend. But um, I was st- still fortunate to end up with Bede Horan. Yeah, he was a remarkable character, Bede. He... He'd trained in the bush in the west of New South Wales for many years and it was a pretty bold move for a bloke of his age to suddenly turn up at Rose Hill in an era when there were top trainers all over the place and he was able to buy stables at Rose Hill, wasn't he? 
Yes. Um, actually, I visited there just two a week and a half ago. I, yeah. The Huntley uh, Ridges Hotel is on the property that my boss owned. Gee whiz. Um, yeah. so I, I stayed there for one night while I went to the track work at Rose Hill. Um, yeah, a lot of memories in Rose Hill, and um, Bede was just um, fortunate enough and a very, very hard worker that he made a go of it at Rose Hill. So mm. it was very good. Yeah. Well, even though he became a city trainer, he liked nothing more than sneaking a horse back to the bush. He would literally scour the AJC calendar looking for the right race for his ordinary horses. Did he ever take you back on those country trips? Many a times, many a times. Um, we always went west. We didn't go south or north. No. We always went west, as far west as Warren. Mm. Um even one of his better horses, Grey L, won his maiden at Warren with Chris William on. Mm. Um, I think we were. I was allowed bet then. I weren't riding, but um, they were the the good old days. We used to go out there, and my I rode a um, a winner out there at Orange uh, Orange Cup winner on a horse called Crylaws, who'd been your first predict. winner, hadn't he, at Hawkesbury? He, it was my first winner, and to win a Hawkesbury Cup as an apprentice, I was quite chuffed at the time. Mm, an Orange Cup. That's right. Yeah. Before we leave Bede Horan, he had several handy horses over the years, but I think his best, beyond doubt, was a giant of a sprinter by the name of Pardon Me. He won an Oakley Plate and other uh, stakes races, very, very big horse with a tonne of ability, uh, before your time, but I bet you heard all about him. Yes, uh, B never forgot where he started. He started at Wellington and with Pardon Me. And I think even the great Jeff Lane might have even rode him one day. Mm. Um, yeah, we heard all the stories about Pardon Me. He was an exceptional racehorse. Mm. Now, Bill Fisher owned some of the horses you've been talking about, Grey Owl and Crylaws. Uh, Bill was a prolific owner in the era, and he had a lot of horses with Bede Horan, didn't he? Yeah, well, we, we were fortunate enough. You always need somebody to back you in this game, and Bill Fisher was um, Bede's biggest owner. But Arthur Baxter was also one of his quite big owners, so mm. um, we were fortunate in that way. Can you remember your first Sydney Metropolitan winner as an apprentice? My first Sydney Metropolitan winner was a horse called Sabron. Mm. Um, not sure who owned it at the time, but it wasn't one of our prolific owners, but Sabron was my first city winner, something you never forget. Yeah. And Crylos was my first ever winner at yeah. Hawkesbury. Yep. Well, many other Rose Hill trainers used your services in those early years, including the very good horseman Terry Ramsey. You won a black opal for Terry on a very smart two-year-old called Nassau, one of the early black opals. Yes, um, Nassau was a very good two-year-old to me. He was probably my first major two-year-old horse, which I won the black opal on. I won a Todman slipper on him. So, yeah, he was very good to me. Terry also put you on a very good filly called L.A. Show, in the early 1980s, and one of your wins on LA Show was the Flight Stakes, in which she beat Albert McKenna's good filly, Black Shoes. Wasn't a Group 1 back then, though, was it? 
No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, wish, we wish it was the prize money of today. Mm. But, no, she was a good horse. She won a Riesling Slipper too. Um, so I, I won a lot of the lead-ups to the Golden Slipper, but I wasn't as fortunate as Shane Dyan to win us. I didn't win any slippers, but mm. what did he win, four or five, didn't he? He won four, yeah. Shares the record with Ronnie Quinton. <laughs> yes, but um, I, I was very, very happy to ride the class of horse that I rode um, and very fortunate. Mm. Did you ride in a slipper? I think I had about three or four rides in the slipper, yes. Mm. yes. Um, most of them two-year-olds that I was riding run in the slipper. I don't. I didn't ride Nassau in the slipper because I think I had a broken collarbone, but mm. um, I had a few cracks at it, but never got close. Mm. Doctor Jeff Chapman admired your talents. You won a silver slipper for the Doc on Merkin, whose name was later changed by the AJC Registrar, and she was renamed Geostra. Uh, she was a speedy filly. Yes. Um I, I had a very good association with Doc, and he was great to ride for, and um, he always give you confidence. Um, so that was a good part of my life, also riding mm. for the Doc. And um, yeah, it um, you know, like then I was fortunate enough to ride Maya Card in his early wins before I went to Hong Kong. So yes, it, it was very good memories. Well, you rode him in his very first start at Canterbury. And you thought he was nigh on unbeatable that day? Yeah, he 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 just showed us so much. The class horses you generally know are class, and we did think he was very classy horse. So obviously, mm. the stable bet accordingly. The first start he won, and then it was he won a Brambles Classic the same year. So mm. that shows class anyway, you know. Mm. I think he was expected to race handy. Yeah, in the Brambles, but he got a long way back, didn't he? He was closer to the last than first coming to the turn. So mm. we just thought, um, a- as it turned out, he was really a middle-distance horse. So to win 1,200s, that was just sheer class. Um, yeah. So, you know, like, and that's why he just didn't have the natural speed to put himself into the race early, but he, he mm. just had the class to get home over top of him. So, yeah. Did you – did you predict the future that lay ahead of Maya Card? Not probably to the heights that he got to, but I always thought he was, at the time, I thought he was the best horse I'd ever ridden. So, mm. therefore, I I thought he'd win a group one. I think he won a few with De Montfort on, and um, he was a very good horse, probably the best horse I ever rode in Australia. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he had plenty of class. You almost caused a massive boil-over in the 1981 Premier Stakes at Rose Hill. You'll remember this one. It was Kingston Town's first run back from a spell over the 1,200 metres. That didn't worry the King. He could sprint with the best of them early in a preparation. He was at long odds on. You rode a grey horse called Moore Mink for Brian Mayfield-Smith and he was at cricket score odds. Malcolm Johnston stopped riding Kingston Town in the last 100 metres. He stopped. You flashed up. What was the margin? Wouldn't be more than a neck, would it? No, I think it was even closer to a head, but mm. I actually thought I'd got beat, 
Malcolm was having a heart attack. Um, <laughs> but um, I, it, it just would have been it would have been good for me to win. But um, he was in my era. He was the best horse I'd ever seen, Kingston mm. Town. So in all things being equal, it would have been a shame if I be- beat him. But I, I mm. would have taken it, and Paul Malcolm would have had a heart attack. But mm. um, it, um, yeah, it give him a fright. I think Tommy tore strips off Malcolm, but um, my horse run great. But he, he was a pretty handy horse himself, but not in the same. You couldn't talk in the same breath as Kingston Town. No. Now, it's funny you say Tommy tore strips off Malcolm. He certainly did. I'll never forget, I was listening up in the broadcasting box when Kenny Callender on Channel 9's Wide World of Sports immediately tested the reaction of Smith to Malcolm's casual ride. And Tommy uh, very clearly said, Ken, if he ever does that again, he won't be riding Kingston Town. (laughs) TJ was absolutely filthy, and he told the world about it. Yes, um, he 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 always voiced his opinion, as we know. But the bloke of his ability, he was entitled to. Mm. Now we mentioned Brian Mayfield Smith, who trained the horse you rode, More Mink. Uh, he'd not long taken over the training of Stan Fox's horses from Jack Denham. Did you get to ride a little bit for Mayfield Smith in that era? Yeah, I, I rode for Mayfield quite a bit in that era. Um, this was all before I went to Hong Kong, and um, he was very, very professional. He wasn't easy to ride for, but he was always going to be a top trainer. Mm. There was no no doubt in that. He'd come from my hometown, actually, from Cairns. He did, yeah. And just his sheer dedication and his ability with horses, he was always going to go to the top. I predicted that. 10 years before he did. Um, I just no, – nobody can be as good as him and not get somewhere near the top, in mm. which he proved proved it and he did, you know. Mm. Well, it was about four years after that fateful day when you almost upset Kingston Town when Mayfield Smith knocked Tommy Smith off his perch as Premier Sydney trainer after a reign of 33 years. It was remarkable. It was at that. It was at that. But like I said, he did have the ability. So it wasn't, you know, when when you have the backing that he had, it wasn't a surprise that he had the ability to do it. Mm. Um, Tommy was the greatest trainer that we'd ever seen in Australia. Mm. But um, nothing lasts forever. No. A connection uh, with Merkin's Asian owner was the catalyst in your gaining a contract to ride in Hong Kong in the late 1980s. Now, you stayed for three seasons. You rode plenty of winners. Who was the trainer you linked up with originally? I was with a local trainer called Wong, Wong Su Tan. He's since passed away. Um, I rode for him for one year, and then I rode for an Aussie trainer called Bruce Hutchison for two years. Mm. His son's actually on racing.com, Clint Hutchison. So oh, we're all yeah. still good friends going back 30 years. So mm. it's um, it's good to have that sort of friendship formed in your job and um, you know, sort of passing. But um, Clint and I are still good friends after 30-something years. It's, it's mm. really good. Now, we're talking late 1980s. 
Who were the overseas jockeys in Hong Kong at that time? Um, at the time, see, I, we weren't opened up to South Africa, so the superstars that come later, they weren't allowed in at that time, but we had mm. guys, you know, like Noel Barker, mm. God bless his soul, um, Wayne Harris rode there, Gary Palmer rode there, um, Brucey Compton rode. Mm. Uh, there was many of Australian jockeys riding there at the time, um, and this was sort of straight after they had a bit of trouble in Hong Kong and a few jockeys um, got time and everything, so there was a bit of a gap, and that, that was the reason I got in, you know. Mm-hmm. So You won a couple of decent yeah. races there. You won a centenary vase and a race called the Queen Mother's Cup. So you left your mark. It was probably the best horse I rode in Asia. Um, John Moore trained it and who was a very good trainer there, and mm. right till the death he was one of the top trainers. Um, yeah, Stingray won both them races. I think I had four rides on Stingray for two wins, two seconds, so he was my best horse I ever rode mm. in Asia. I had a bit of luck on a few others. Um, I, I rode the top, what they, it's like two-year-olds, but they're called Griffins in Hong Kong, um, mm. a horse called Toy Show. Yeah. Um so, yeah, I, I had enough luck. Like um, I rode for very small stables, really, mm. and you had to be a, a stable jockey to have a licence there. They didn't have this club jockey system, which they've got now, and yeah. it's a better system. Mm. Um, but I think totally in the three years I rode 60 winners, so I was quite happy with that when I was only riding for the small stables. Oh, you know? Absolutely. It was 1991 when you first investigated Macau as a likely venue for your later riding career. Did you go there initially as a club jockey? No, um, they'd already employed jockeys and um, we just got that date a little bit of miss. It was end of 89. Mm-hmm. Um, they had employed uh, trainers from around the world and jockeys from around the world and then right at just before we started, they contacted Bobby Vance from New Zealand and myself. Mm-hmm. So we both come here as freelance jockeys. Um, and sort of we were fortunate enough because we had the Asian connection also. So um, it was a little bit more beneficial to us, you know, and um, we had a fair bit of success between us. Very good rider, Bobby Vance. He finished up winning a Cox Plate a few years later on a horse called the Phantom Chance. I think you became pretty friendly with Bob. Yes, yes, we're still great mates. Um, yeah, he used to um, ride Mr McGinty and them sort of horses. He, he rode quite a few good horses in New Zealand and he was in Hong Kong when I rode there and then he come to Macau. So we've sort of crossed paths many a times. Now, you finished up winning three Macau Jockeys Premierships against consistently strong opposition, and you ran second in another one. It seems, Jeff, that the better the depth of riding talent, the safer racing is. Is that how you found it? Uh, we, we had very good jockeys. You know, like when you've got guys like Neil Williams, we had leading apprentice from Adelaide, Ricky Peach. He was one of... Um, David Hayes' father's apprentices. Mm. 
um, you could follow these guys. It's it's like following James McDonald, you know. Mm. Um, they were good jockeys. They knew where they were going, so um, you felt really comfortable in a race, yes. What were your major riding wins in Macau? Um, I won a couple of Governor's Cups. When, when I rode here, we didn't – we were only just starting, so – we had all the calibre of horses and trainers and jockeys, but we didn't have the big races as such. They come later, mm. like the derbies and your guineas and your derby trials. So I wasn't fortunate to win any of them big races. I, the cups of the day, like we had ladies' purse and them sort of races, I mm. won most of them. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I think the Governor's Cup was our biggest race, which I won one or two of them. So mm. it was quite good. Now, back in those days, you'd slip home to Australia whenever there was a lull in Macau racing and you'd immediately have a presence. You'd turn up at track work, you'd make yourself available for race rides, you'd pop up to Gosford or Wyong or Newcastle, wherever, and one such exercise brought you a Group 1 winner. How did you get yourself on Western Red in the 1994 Canterbury Guineas. Well, well, that just goes being in the right place at the right time. Um, I, um, Colin Gillings was a very good friend of the owner-trainer, and he mm. was at Rose Hill. He used to always stay at Rose Hill, mm. and I was riding Western Red work. Mm. Um, I think Mick Dipman rode him in his first start in Australia, and they had quite a sizable bet on him. Mm. at Warwick Farm and he got beat but obviously Mick got off him I didn't he didn't get the sack or anything and um and I they were looking for a jockey and they were sort of after Grant Cooksley and a couple of others and um then and initially they then they put me on it so it was just being in the right place at the right time mm. I seem to recall you being midfield in the run I had a very good run. I, I sort of can't picture the race a hundred percent in my head. It's probably old age. I, I'd love to have your memory, but um, you wouldn't like to have my age. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I had a very good run, and I'm pretty sure Jimmy Cassidy um, run second. So yeah, like to ride against these jockeys, I was. Honoured, you know, like these were gr our great jockeys, you know, your Kevin Langby's, your Jimmy Cassidy's. Mm. We had a lot of great jockeys. So to mm. ride against them, I was just happy. But to beat them, you know, it's just ecstatic. Mm. Well, Jimmy probably rode the runner-up, March Hare, who was a subsequent Group 1 winner. Fraternity ran third, probably with Brian York, and he too was a Group 1 winner. So it was a pretty good Canterbury Guineas. Yes, it was. It was. Um, but, yeah, it just you've got to have a little bit of luck, and I think I did have it that day. So that was very good, you know. You retained the ride in the Rose Hill Guineas, uh, which was won by a ruffie called Star of Maple, but you didn't get into the race that day. Yeah, I, I think he was disappointing after that, and... Um, even his later runs, even after that, he was disappointing. Um, mm. I, I think from memory, I think somebody brought him and I, I think he stood at stud at um, Rockhampton or somewhere. Mm. 
Mm. Jeff, yeah. I'll get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll come back with you after this. The Expressway Stakes has become the harbinger of the Sydney Autumn Carnival. Inaugurated in 1974 when I'm Scarlet was the winner, the Expressway has become the first stepping stone for top-class horses embarking on an autumn campaign. Horses like Zephyr Bay, Luscan Star, Kingston Town, Sir Dapper, Saintly, Tie the Knot and Lonro. Only elite performers are capable of winning the Expressway first up before going on to Group 1 success over longer distances. Kingston Town is the best example. In the autumn of 1980, he put together wins in the Expressway, the Heritage, the Rose Hill Guineas, the Tancred, the AJC Derby and the Sydney Cup. The Expressway Stakes has been run at all four metropolitan tracks over varied distances, but has been fixed at 1,200 metres since 2005. The 2023 edition of the Group 2 Wait for Age Sprint will be run at Rose Hill on Saturday, January the 28th for $250,000. The Expressway Stakes is just the start of an elite Sydney Autumn Carnival culminating in the championships on the 1st and 8th of April. My special guest, direct from Macau, is Jeff Allendorf. You rode right through until 1999. Why did you stop? Uh, well, I, I was 42, I think, at the time. Like, I know jockeys are riding later in life these days, but I was 42. Uh, Macau was flying at the time, and they really only give... Um, jockeys as a visitor a couple of times. I was fortunate to get about five or six times after I was champion jockey. Mm. Um, but they'd, they'd had, you know, they were getting plenty of jockeys here and I just thought that it was the right time to give it away. Um, I was thought I was getting old, plus I was, you know, having a little bit of trouble still with my weight. I had weight troubles all, all the way through my career, but... Um, Mm. I just thought that was the right time and it, it sort of worked out okay anyway. Oh, sure did. You suffered two broken legs throughout that career, some years apart, uh, first time the left, second time the right, but you escaped head injuries. And I know you've always regarded yourself as relatively lucky. I think, um, you know, when you see um, some other unfortunate people and everything um i was very lucky a broken leg and a broken collarbone these things will always mend um landing on your head and sort of having brain damage and this sort of thing um that's the saddest part of our game you know mm. um yeah like things like happen to ty anglin um a million jockeys knuckle over out of the barriers and then for him to end up as unfortunate as he's had, you know, like it's just, um, it's very, very sad because that's a tough part of the game, but um, we all sort of, we love the game that much. We're willing to take that risk, you know, as Kenny Russell was, which he, mm. he risked his life and give his life for the game. But mm. um, it's, um, yeah, I was very fortunate. A couple of broken legs is a small matter. Mm. Ty England, of course, has ventured into jockey management and they tell me he's doing a tremendous job. And I know he's enjoying it. Oh, he's a superstar. As, as a person, like he was a great jockey, but as a person, 
Um, he's a superstar. He's um, living life and looking after a great family. I actually brought him to Macau as a kid when he was an apprentice to ride in one of the good races. We didn't have any luck, but I was hmm. I think I would have been the first guy to bring him to Asia. Um, yeah, I, I just think um, guys like that make it easier for other people to um, live life, you know, like because he's got on with his life and he's done very, very exceptional. And um, he just seems to have a great mindset. He does, and he's totally inspirational. Uh, for everybody. Everybody that follows after him and people around him, he, he is at that. After announcing your retirement, you came home to Sydney, and for a couple of years you virtually earned a living riding track work for a number of trainers at Rose Hill. So you were still a bit undecided about the future at that stage. Yeah, well, once you give up being a jockey, it's very hard to, um, you know, you, you're a jockey for 25, 30 years. It's very hard to just get into something else. I never, ever really considered being a horse trainer at home. I thought I'd been away too long and I thought it was actually too hard. Um, mm. And I didn't have nobody to back me. So I um, just rode a bit of work. I always like to keep fit. I love riding track work. And um, my former stable jockey, Chris William, got me into golf. And um, I went from playing four times a year to four times a week. Mm. Now that's, that's my other passion. It's not widely known, Jeff, that you were still riding track work in Macau as recently as three years ago. Well, I, I still didn't – the guy who inspired me to do that was Teddy Doon. I thought if he could ride till he's 70-odd, I should be able to ride till I'm something up there. And I rode mm. track work up until I was 62 um, and still any sort of horse. So, mm. um, And I actually miss it. I actually miss riding track work. Mm. Um, but you've got to sort of put a stop to all that too. Now, an offer came up that greatly appealed to you, a position as assistant trainer to the late Russell Cameron, who died in 2019 unexpectedly. You couldn't have been with a better tutor or a better bloke at, at that stage of your career. A great guy, and I didn't know Russell. The reason I, I had a connection to Russell was to his former apprentice, Stephen Arnold. Um, and when he got the offer to come to Macau, they rang me and said, would I go with them? Mm. And, um, yes, he was he was the nicest guy you'd ever meet, and he had a hell of a lot of knowledge about horse training mm. um, because his father was actually a great horseman. Ted. So, um, yes, in, in mm. which I never met, but um, – so he, he had a lot of understanding of the game. Um, so I spent nearly two years with him before mm. I started training on my own. Yeah, and that was in 2005 when you got your full licence to train in Macau. How did you build up a team of horses? Where did the owners come from? Um, most of our owners are from Hong Kong. Um, we have a few local owners, um, but most come from Hong Kong, um, 
as I got into training, I end up having a couple of um, Colin Keane was one of my biggest donors. I had seven horses here for Colin at one stage. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like and even guys like Dougie Forbes, who owns horses in Brisbane, he had shares in horses with me and Reggie Hemmen. Hmm. So um, I've had a few Australians involved in a few horses, but the bulk of my owners were Hong Kong people, yes. Hmm. Well, it's been a very fruitful 17 years, Jeff. You've had a lot of fun, you've had a lot of satisfaction, and you've had a lot of winners. Now, can I just throw a few names at you randomly regarding the horses you've trained? I've got a feeling you rate Let Go as the best of them. He won races like a Chinese New Year trophy, he won the Macau Cup, and he won the Spring Trophy. You loved him. Well, he he was my first major horse I brought, like in the first couple of years, with the help of Gordon Benson, and um, he was just. I think we paid about a hundred thousand Aussie for him. We brought him off um, Jonathan Munns in Melbourne, one of the big owners down there, mm-hmm. and um, he won six million Hong Kong dollars. So yeah. he was very very good horse to me. He won a lot of cup races. But he run places to really good horses here. Mm. So he he wasn't the best horse in Macau, but he would have rated third or fourth in his career. Mm. And um, But he still was able to win good races, and he won six million. So mm. um, he, he was a great horse to us. Lucky and Wealthy was a prolific winner for you. He won a derby. He won the Macau Gold Cup. He won the Macau Sprint Trophy. Never stopped winning. Yes, and I think he won from 1,200 to 1,800. Um, he he was at his best on a wet track, and we had a wet derby that year, and we had a wet gold cup, um, But and I couldn't get a jockey. So um, a German jockey rode him in the derby, a visiting German jockey called Helfenbein, mm-hmm. and then I got the great Joe Moreira to ride him in the gold cup. He was riding in Singapore at the time. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I've been fortunate to have a few, quite a few good jockeys ride for me over the years. So that's been a, you know, big plus. Mm. Nitten's Crown was a nice horse for you. He won three cups at Taipa. He was an ex-Sydney sider, I think. Yes, he was. Um, and talking about jockeys, Brent Stanley won on him for me, cup mm. races and that. So I had Brent riding for me as a stable jockey at the time. And we had a lot of success and luck together, mm. so, which was very good. You got a big kick to win another Macau Derby about six years ago with turquoise power on a very wet track. You've mentioned Joey Marrera already. He was in Hong Kong by this time. You brought him on the ferry uh, to ride yeah, see, uh, turquoise power. Yeah, I was fortunate to get him to ride um, – this horse because he had a little bit of a rush preparation. He only had one start before the derby, Mm -hmm. which um, Andrew Calder won on him. Um, He, um, but then we already had Joe booked for the derby and um, Joe was like, he's just a superstar, Joe Marrera. And um, he won, won the derby for me. So Mm -hmm. it was a very great time. There's an element of sadness about Joey Marrera's, impending retirement, Jeff, as a result of ongoing hip issues. Hasn't he had a presence in Hong Kong? 
uh, he he's just you know you. He's one of the greats, you know. When you talk about great jockeys, you know, your Lester Piggotts and and you'd even put um, Zach Purton in that class. You'd, you'd, if you're that good for that long, you've got to be a superstar, you know. Like we go back to your Beadmans. Um, longevity, I think there's plenty of good jockeys and plenty do well for short periods, but to do it over a long period of time, that puts you in the great class, I think. You know, like even your Damien Oliver's to to be doing it at that age, at that you know that level, you've got to be a great jockey. Mm. Joey's currently on his farewell tour, and he's philosophical enough about it. But I think deep down, there's a touch of sadness for him. Ah, hundred percent. And and he's he's one of them deep people too. He thinks a lot. Um, and he he's a great confidence jockey. He if he's having a bit of a bad run, he gets down on himself. Um, mm. You know, like when you look at his record, he shouldn't be getting down on himself, but he does. If he's having a bit of a um, ordinary run for his calibre, mm. um, he gets very down on himself. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I hope to catch up with him in the not-too-distant future because he is a great guy. Mm. Now, Jeff, uh, you've already mentioned some of the Australian jockeys and overseas jockeys to ride in Macau. You've mentioned Bobby Vance. I've just shot at a few others down here. Peter Lation. Pete, Peter's had a big history in Asia. I think he, when he left Tommy Smith, he come to Hong Kong. He was one of the early jockeys there, and he's been in Asia ever since. He rode in Hong Kong. Mm. He rode here, and then... The last, um, say, 20-odd years, he's been training here. He's just – he's probably going to retire this year. I hope I'm mm. not letting anything out the bag, but he'll probably retire this year. Mm. He's got a property in country Melbourne, and he'll probably go back there. Um, but he's, he's one of our good friends, yes. Victorian Steve Burridge rode in Macau uh, some years back before going to Singapore to become a trainer. I know Steve has remained one of your closest friends and on your way home from Australia, just a week or so back, you stopped off in Singapore to look him up. Oh, that was terrific timing for me because I, I stopped in Singapore and I had dinner with Stephen Burridge, who I've known for 30 years, and Manuel Nunes, who's the leading mm. jock there. Mm. So they both had had two winners for the day. So I knew I was going to get a free feed anyway. (laughs) Michael Carl spent some time in Macau. He did very, very well here. He he was probably here in the best days also when Mm. the betting was very, very big. He rode for – I reckon he rode for Mick Kent and Barry Bolwyn. Like with – they had a very big owner at the time, and he was very successful here. Mm. Actually, I bumped him at the Gold Coast just a, a week ago. Um, so it's still good to catch up with these guys, you know. Mm. Danny Beasley has just returned from Singapore. He's come back to his hometown of uh, Wagga, uh, where he's going to continue his riding career well in his 40s now, late 40s, I'd have to say. But he's still going strongly, Danny, and still loves it. Harry Troy rode for quite a while in Macau and went on to an amazing career post-racing, didn't he, uh, Harry, as a caller, a race caller? 
Well, you will probably he's, he's idle and he's um, he does a great job calling the races here. They tried to replace him and technically he was irreplaceable, especially with a Chinese commentator. But um, Harry does a great job here. Mm. Brent Thompson had a presence there. So did Lisa Crop and Neil Payne, who's now working as one of the Waterhouse Bot uh, stable foremen, also rode successfully in Macau. I think if you name most of the jockeys, um, a lot of them have some sort of stint here over the time. Um, and like when you say Lisa Crop and that, they're all at their top when they come here. You know, they weren't sort of finished as jockeys. And um, mm. so we, we were very competitive in, in the sort of late 90s and that. Um, and we still occasionally we're still getting good class of jockeys, but we we need to sort of – have a re revitalize and get back to where we were of old, you know. Mm. Now, Jeff, I know you were privileged, delighted, and thrilled to ride against the great Lester Piggott. Uh, well, what Lester did, yeah, you know, like he he was probably George Moore was our greatest ever jockey, as in history and you know, like folklore and everything. But Lester Piggott was the world's greatest ever jockey, you know. Mm. Um, I rode against him in Singapore one time. I was I was there on a what they called a busman's holiday a few weeks at a time, and um, there was a series race on, and Lester was there. He could adapt to any track or any horse in the world. So that just you talk about the greats. He he's right up there in the top few for sure. And what of Frankie Dottori? Did you see much of Frank in that part of the world? Yes, he's one of the greats too. I know. We're, that's the unfortunate thing. We're very hard too in Australia, as you know. But um, Frank, people at home hasn't haven't seen Frankie at his best. Like when he rode the seven winners in England that day, that's sort of. Yeah, that's George Moore class. It's um, it's unheard of when people do that. And mm. some of the things Frankie's done in his life, um, it's just unfortunate when he's been in Australia, um, he just hasn't had the luck. And then, yeah, they ride different in Europe too. They have pacemakers and mm. it's, it's a lot different. Our, our racing's totally different as in competitive and tight. Um, but he's he's one of the greats. I've, I've sort of quite a good friend of Frankie's and I think he's one of the greats. You mentioned earlier that you're a grandfather four times over, thanks to your boys, Michael and Patrick, and their dutiful wives. They're, they're very fortunate. They've got two great girls for wives and, um, yeah, I've got three grandsons and one granddaughter. Mm. Two of them I hadn't seen since they got born because of this COVID, but we're very lucky these days with your FaceTimes and mm. all them sort of things with the video calls. But I was very, very pleased to get home and catch up with them all. Um, mm. My boys are doing quite well in business, so and their wives are um, looking after the children and also still working, so they're mm. all going great at home. Mm. And uh, that wonderful mum and grandmother, Sue, has remained in Sydney, and uh, I know you have a lot of contact. Yeah, well, she she um, she likes Sydney better than she likes Asia, and I like Asia better than I like Sydney. So that's why we're in different countries. Simple so as that. That's yeah. 
that's probably unfortunate, but um, that's life. But um, no, we're all still friends, so that's it's all good. Mm. All good. Now, Jeff, is there any age limit on horse training in Macau, as there is in Hong Kong? It was the age limit that brought the curtain down on John Moore's career not long ago. No, we we don't have an age limit uh, at this stage. Um, you can understand why Hong Kong does have an age limit, but because it's to let the younger generation come through, especially the locals. You know, you've got to be fair to the locals. Mm. Um, John's been a great trainer in Hong Kong, and financially he would have done very, very well. Um, you know, trainers in Australia don't retire, they just die. Mm. Where in Hong Kong, he, he, he made the age limit higher you know i think it was 65 then it went to 70 mm. um that was all because of john moore but he was still good for hong kong racing he he had more cup winners than anybody um yeah but it's just unfortunate but you know like if he really wants to train he can train in australia you know like he's got the backing he's got the he's got the wealth mm. um if i was john moore i'd just golf to my heart content mm. Now, Jeff, I'm just trying to predict your future. Where do you see yourself a few years down the track? Back on Australian soil? I'll definitely retire in Australia, probably more likely at the Gold Coast because it's sort of between Cairns and Sydney um, and they've got plenty of golf courses. But if we could turn it around a little bit, I would love to spend another five years here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that'd get me up to the 70 age group. Um, but it's just all depends how we're going here. Um, but at this stage, I'm hoping we can turn it around. We've got a really, really good product here. We just, we just need to get a few things done, you know. Mm. Um, we just got to give it a crack and see what happens. Now, when your good mate Chris Gwilliam introduced you to golf, he created a monster. It has become your greatest passion away from racing. In fact, I think it's an obsession. It is. It is. It's after horse racing. Horse racing is still my greatest passion. Like the, I'm doing a job that I love doing, so I don't know whether you're allowed to call it a job when you love doing it as much as we like it. No. Um, but if I do anything else, I've got to play golf. And I'm not that very good at it, but I enjoy it. And the people that you meet playing it is unbelievable. And we have a lot of fun. We don't treat it too seriously. But right back to the days when I used to play with, you know, your Sidley Kellys and Malcolm Johnson and your bossies and all that, um, it's a great sport. And my boys play too, so I can actually play with them. So Yeah, great. Um, there's not a lot of other things as in sport you can do with any age, but golf you can. Mm. Bill Fisher owned Cry Laws, didn't he? Correct, yes. Yeah, well, I can still see you in Bill's colours, red, lilac Maltese cross and a lilac cap, winning that race at Hawkesbury all those years ago. Must be getting close to half a century. I called that race uh, with young Jeff Allendorf in the famous Fisher colours winning his very first race, the first of about 1,500 all up. I would never have dreamed that day, mate, that I'd be talking to you 50 years on 
from your training base in Asia. It's been a delight to catch up. Thank you very much for the time, John. Um, you've, you've been a legend of the game and um, these podcasts you're doing, it keeps everybody informed on where everybody is. Everybody loves to know where a Kevin Langby is and these sort of guys. So um, you're doing a great job still. And um, I'm very fortunate that you thought to give me a call. You've been on the list for a long time, Jeffrey, and I'm so pleased we got around to it. Continued good fortune in Macau. I hope a couple more Macau Cups, Gull Cups and Derbies come your way before you put the queue in the rack. Thanks very much, John. Thank you very much. Jeff Allendorf talking to us from the Enclave of Macau on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes.